last week we looked at the beginning of the Abram cycle and at the beginning we noticed that God had promised given this covenant to Abram that he would give him land blessing which he describes as a great name that's what he meant by blessing there the blessing of a great name and seed and seed being very significant that's the descendants and really the New Testament will describe the particular ultimate descendant who will not only settle in to the land with a great name but will give all who are curse who would bless that descendant rather than curse him land seed and a great name and we saw the Christological implications of that this looks to Jesus Christ as the seed and that in Christ we have we have eternal life corresponding with seed we have eternal home corresponding with land and we have a name a new name that he has given us we have the name of Christ written upon us the sons of God good stories true accounts good stories always have conflict not because we try to create conflict to make the story good but because life has conflict because we live in a fallen world the greatest promises and blessings always have a conflict that follows and it wastes no time Moses our human author wastes no time in quickly moving to the first conflict following the promise and it's simply this Will the covenant promises be defeated? Will, is the voice of God's promise to Abram too good to really be true? And that's what we'll see today. Now this story has a simple format to it. Moses gives us an introduction and a conclusion. In fact, it's very parallel in the introduction and conclusion. We didn't read this part of it. But the end of, chapter, uh, the, end of the previous paragraph, 12.9, said, So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. That's the word Negev, or the southern part of Israel, northern part of Egypt, kind of between them, the Negev there. And then if you look over at chapter 13, we have the end of the story after all this takes place. Then Abraham went up from Egypt, and he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him to the Negev, to the south. And so you have these, this intro and conclusion. Abram goes down toward, from the south, down toward Egypt, and then Abram comes up from Egypt to the south again. Not south of Egypt, but south of where he was when he started, the Negev. And then three scenes unfold in this story. Very simple three scenes. Uh, First, we have Abram's speech or what he's thinking and what he says. And then we have his fears realized or partially realized. And then we have Pharaoh's speech and what he says. And that's the way it's organized textually. Obviously... Organizing texts like this sort of takes the fun out of them a little bit. becomes a little more academic instead of just thinking through the story. So I want us to think through the story again, working through these scenes, and try to understand a little bit about what's going on here. Scene one begins with Abram's inner thoughts. And in his inner thoughts, he's looking at his wife as they're traveling down to Egypt. And of course, the question is, why are they traveling down to Egypt? And the introduction tells us because there was a famine in the land. Now, why was there a famine in the land? Well, if you know anything about the, the uh, geography of Canaan and Egypt, 
Uh, Canaan, or Israel today in the region, relies completely on rainfall and snowpack in order for there to be crops. And when that's there, it's very lush, very, very plentiful. But when it's gone, when it's a dry year, it's very dangerous and difficult. This must have been a dry year. On the other hand, Egypt has the Nile River, constantly providing a supply of nutrients. So Egypt relatively would remain unscathed from famines and dry years in the region. So there's this famine. Abram and Sarah, most likely the rest of his entourage, though it only speaks of them in the story, are heading down to Egypt to find some relief. And Abram begins to think, my wife's very, very beautiful. That doesn't usually bode well for me. When I'm around people, because they always want to flirt with her. They always want to have something. And I'm going down to a strange place with a strange country. They're going to take my wife and kill me so they can have her beauty. Now, right away, and I hope this doesn't sound offensive to anybody. I don't mean it in this way. But it's the question that's raised in all the commentaries. Why did Abram view his wife as beautiful? And some of the commentaries said, after all, if you do the timeline, she's 65 years old here. I'm not saying 65-year-olds aren't beautiful. That was the question that was raised. And I thought it's an appropriate question to ask. Is this Abram just like, my wife's the most beautiful woman around, ha-ha? Or is this true? Well, the answer is, it obviously is true. Because the Egyptians say the same thing. Pharaoh thinks the same thing, or at least his court thinks the same thing. And they want to make Sarah part of his harem. Was this some unnatural beauty like this youthfulness that never went away from Sarah? Most likely not. Um, Doing a little bit of study in Semitic cultures, they viewed uh, um, matronly figures, older matronly figures, as more beautiful than our view of maybe the youthful and the young and the slim and this sort of idea. It was just a different different sort of perspective. I was expecting a few more amens from people saying, that's we should, and maybe we should think this way. And just if you're just curious, one of the reasons for this is that the huge importance in Semitic cultures in raising families and childbearing, that was more attractive to them. The idea of the woman who's raising children or can raise children is more attractive than somebody who goes to the gym every week. So in the culture we're looking at here, Sarah obviously is very striking in their understanding. So Abram's not... Just a jealous husband who just thinks his wife's the best. He's objectively looking at this. This seems very logical and objective. And so he decides and he approaches Sarah and he says, I know that you're a beautiful woman. I, we don't have all the story. I'm sure Sarah said, of course. So he presumes that because of that, he says, it will happen that they're going to take you. Which actually happens. So he's not wrong. But he assumes they'll kill him to take her. And let you live. Now he does remark, if you notice in the story, he says it will be good for you. But it just seems the tenor of the story is, most importantly, it will be good for me. <laughs> right? You'll get to live in Pharaoh's court as part of his harem, and I'll die. I'm, I'm not sure who's getting the worst 
arrangement in there. But it seems from the story, Abram's not thinking about that. He's thinking about one particular thing. I'm going to die. He's afraid. So they get to Egypt. They can talk about By the way, people, there's all sorts of things. Whenever biblical stories have very few details, and this has few details, people come up with all sorts of filling in the blank sort of thing. And that's just not usually a good approach. People have written things like whether Sarah was forced into this, whether she's culpable in it, all this sort of stuff. And the reality is, the biblical author tells us the details we need to know. We just don't know anything about it. We know a couple of things. First of all, we know that the Hebrew language, he's requesting this of Sarah. He's not demanding it. In fact, it's reflected in our trans- this translation, please say this. And that's the Hebrew word na, which is, I, I implore you. So Abram's not forcing his wife into this. It doesn't seem like it. And furthermore, we know that she seems to go along with it. And then even when their ruse is found out, neither one of them makes a big cry against it. So I just, I'm not throwing either one of them under the bus. And I'm simply saying that they're in agreement, that this is the way to go about it. So they get to Egypt, scene two. And their fears are realized, at least partially. They notice how beautiful Sarah is. Pharaoh takes him into the court and makes her a part of his harem. Now, that's, I think, very clearly as far as it went. I don't even think Pharaoh necessarily had much interaction with Sarah, if any. It sounds, everything in the text sounds like all the people in the court, the Egyptians there, the people there are the ones doing all this. I'm sure Pharaoh had a standing order, any beautiful women bring her, she's mine, sort of concept. But how they escape is their plan that they hatched up, right? And this was the plan that we read. Say that you're my sister and they won't kill me. So he's already assumed they're going to take him into court. Somebody's going to take her. Somebody's going to want her. Something's going to happen. So how does this solve anything? There's two questions I want to deal with. How does this solve anything? And secondly, is this true or is this false? Is this a lie or not? So um, first I want to say, how 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 do we think this solves anything? Well, A single woman without a father, unmarried, would have her brother as the one who would determine who she marries in this culture. He'd be the one that received the dowry and would be responsible for giving her hand in marriage. I don't think Abram's thinking, I hope you get married to somebody else while I'm down there so that I can live. I think Abram's thinking, I'll be in a position of control if I'm your brother. I'll be in a place where I can say, oh, yes, she's beautiful. My sister is. I know you'd like to marry her um, and give some exorbitant amount of dowry that nobody could ever pay. And then he could sort of keep keep it, you know, kind of work the system to his advantage. Or he could just delay, delay, delay until the famine is over. They can get back up there. He's trying to get in a position of control of the situation. And he feels like he has no control if he's married to her. But if they're sister or brother, there's some of that uh, cultural control involved there. That's the first thing we sort of need to think through. The second thing is, so is he telling the truth? What is going on here? And, and here's my, my very uh, ambiguous answer. Maybe. So in Genesis 20, this happens again, not in Egypt, but in Gerar. And there, Abram gives a little more explanation, and he argues his case before Abimelech, when this happens again, and says, she is my sister because she's the daughter of my father, but not my mother. So a half-sister. But then we have a really strange issue. Previous, last week, we looked at the text where it speaks of Sarah and her relationship to Tira. 
And it says that she was his daughter-in-law, which is a really weird way to say it if she's actually your daughter. And so there's some ambiguity in the text. There's all sorts. I came up with theory. I'm not even going to share with you today because it probably just takes too much time and doesn't matter. Um, but it's probably, the case is probably in some way she is related to Tira. In other words, he's not speaking, this is my spiritual sister. That she has some relationship, whether it's a half-sister, whether it's a stepsister, maybe it's an adopted sister. In some way, she's related to Tira, thus related to Abraham, and thus I don't think it's a full-on, outright blatant lie. But the text makes it very clear in even just the tone that there is very clear deception going on here, right? In fact, Pharaoh argues with him, and even when it happens later with Abimelech, they argue like, yeah, that's not really cutting it, Abram. You intentionally deceived us about this. And intentional deception is lying. Okay. I think the reason why people struggle with this is we have a hard time with our patriarchal heroes lying, deceiving, failing. Because if they do, what does that say about us? But I think the plain story is there. He's deceiving. Now, people say, well, maybe because this culture, all those things, it wasn't wrong. Okay, I can give all those things, and I can say, read Ephesians chapter 5 and just answer this question for me. Um, did Abram love Sarah like Christ loved the church? No. He failed as a husband. He failed as a leader here. That actually is important to the point of the text. We'll get to that later. So we get down there, and the fears are realized, but Abram's alive. They go with the ruse. She's taken into Pharaoh's court. I don't think Abram counted on the most powerful ruler in the region liking Sarah. So so all his plans are now in haywire. We have no response from them. They don't know what to do about the situation. Um, Obviously, he can't barge into the harem and rescue her. There's all sorts of problems. What do we do? We're in this impossible situation Created by our own cleverness. Have you ever been there in an impossible situation created by your own perceived cleverness? Maybe you haven't, but I have. And I've learned a few lessons, usually not fast enough. Evidently, Abram didn't either. As I said before, this repeats itself again. What are they going to do now? There's nothing they can do. But God intervenes. How does he intervene? Well, in a pretty harsh way. Pharaoh's house gets plagued. We have no idea from the text how they've put two and two together. Maybe everybody was being plagued except for Sarah. (laughs) I don't know. The reality is somehow they figure it out that, okay, the gods, they were pagans, are opposed to this decision we just made. Perhaps it was as simple as when she came into the harem, everybody got sick. And so being superstitious, believing in many gods, perhaps at that point it's like, let's go back and find out where we made our error and figure out what went wrong with this. So 
they figure it out. He approaches, this is the third scene, and he approaches Abram, Pharaoh does, and he says, what have you done to me? Why have you lied to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? And the language is very strong when Abram explains himself. Or why did you say she's my sister? He doesn't explain himself in this one. It's in chapter 20 he does. And the language is very strong. It's very clear. It's take your wife, get out of here. Now that's interesting because that's actually not normal. Of everything else, now would be the time for Pharaoh to kill uh, kill Abram, right? Not only has he deceived, not only could he have Sarah, but he's also brought a plague on their house. But I think this is where the whole paganism comes into play. I think the reason he doesn't kill Abram is because he's trying to get rid of the plague. And that is, if the gods are angry, don't make them more angry by killing whoever this guy is. And then, you know, causing more plagues. Just get them out of us. Exile them. They're exiled out of Egypt. And that's the way it ends. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. In other words, they got an armed escort out of Egypt. Commanded his men, and they sent him away. His wife and all that he had. What did he have? Well, that's what's weird about this whole story. Is that probably in a, in a way of sort of expressing as the brother-sister thing, all this time Pharaoh was showering Abram with gifts. It's described it in verse 16, all these gifts he's showering him with. So Abram's getting rich from his ruse. That doesn't seem just or right or fair, right? Doesn't seem, seem, and, and one could suppose that this is God's blessing. But the text doesn't tell us anything about that. It just sort of leaves all that silent and it ends. And then as I said before, it says, then he went up and they went to the Negev. So that's the story. Weird, right? Strange, unique. We're going to have a lot of these strange, unique stories as we go through the Pentateuch. Its placement is interesting. All, everything about it is interesting. What do we do with it? That's the bigger question, I think, right? What do we do with it? So I, I want to just briefly walk through with you some of the ways in which we might look at this story. And um, if you've heard my preaching for any length of time, you know that the first ones I'm going to tell you I don't think are right. But, but some people think this way. First of all, my favorite interpretation of this story, a partial interpretation, I'll give credit to him, he said more than this, but one of the ancient church fathers, Ambrose, thought this was a good lesson, men, don't marry beautiful women. Because if you do, she's going to cost you your life. I thought, well, that's an interesting takeaway. I don't think that's what's in mind here, okay? That, that's not it. But maybe perhaps a moral lesson is in mind. Like, don't lie. Well, that's true. It's true enough. But if that were the moral lesson intended, do you not think that we would have had the moral application of that from the pages of Scripture? It would have been sort of like a condemnation of it by God or something telling us this is a bad idea, it's not good. Well, that's, I think that's true. As I said before, you can look at Ephesians chapter 5, see the Spirit's understanding of how a marriage should work, and this isn't it. So we know it's not good. But that's not the point of the text, I don't believe. I mean, Abram, yes, clearly sacrificed his wife's safety for his own well-being. He did not love his wife like Christ loved the church. But I don't think that moral truths are actually the point of the story. In fact, I will just encourage you, as we go through a lot of these Genesis stories, if you're always looking for a very immediate moral truth, thou shalt not, it's going to get tough 
to understand what's really going on in the text. So yes, we can glean moral truths, but I don't think we can say that's the point of the text. What about theological truths? Is there, that's a little better, right, than the moral truths. God's sovereign and he protects them. I mean, I think there's a great encouragement in the text that one could bring out, although I don't think it's the primary point or even the, even the, even the point of the text, in that Abram fails as a, as, a, as a husband, but God does not fail as a father to Sarah, right? That's a good, encouraging thing. He doesn't fail. But if that were also the point of the text, somewhere in the context we'd have some indication, I think, that that's what God is getting across. I think the context reveals for us the point of the text more than anything else. And the broader context, what has just happened? God has just given his covenant promises to Abram. And so in actuality, it is a covenantal expression or covenantal lesson that is being taught. In fact, it's really interesting when you think about that. Remember the three aspects of the promise, the covenant, land, seed, and blessing? Do you see how they're all being threatened? There's a famine in the land that God had promised. So they go down to Egypt, and what is Pharaoh threatening to do? To destroy the seed that would come through Abram and Sarah. Now I say, well, what is it just to Abram? Actually, the Genesis will become very clear that this promise was not just to Abram. This promise was to Sarah. The seed, the promised seed, could only come through Sarah and Abram. And so if she is in Pharaoh's court, no longer married to Abram, the promise of seed will fail. And then finally, the blessing, which as I said, was that of a great name. And when you look at this story, how much of a great name would you ascribe to Abram in all of this? He doesn't seem like a very blessed man here. Like very much of a, has a name of reputation. It's actually what we see in Abram is a man who is afraid. And he's sacrificing his wife's safety on the altar of his fears. Doesn't seem like a very blessed, powerful patriarch in all of this. And I think what we're intended to see here is that there is direct threat against the covenant promises of God. Will they hold up? Or will threats of nature, powerful people, And the fear in the heart of God's own man undo, upend, thwart his covenant promises. Let me just talk about those those three for just a minute. And let's think about them, not just in Abram's life, but in ours. Famine. Uncontrollable circumstances outside that we fear. What about when nature strikes? What about when death hits home? What about when everything goes wrong and the house burns down and everything is lost? Where is God in all of that? Will God's promises be made null? 
because you lose everything, because the stock market crashes, because the job economy tanks, you have nothing? Will famine destroy and uproot the divine promise? That's the first crisis encountered. But then what about Pharaoh? What about when powerful politicians, tyrants, armies, cultures rise up against God's truth? What happens when the church buildings become nearly empty and the profane places become full? What happens when there is far more Egypt among us than anything else? There's an election coming up. The most important election of your lifetime. Well, that's what they're all, that's all the texts I'm getting anyways. I mean, every day. I mean, all the ads that have been, you know, I'm in a frenzy just thinking about it's coming up. But what about the election? This is it, right? Will God's promises, will his providence be be, be stalled because of a lying politician? As I said, this is a powerful one. Pharaoh was big. Will will the promise to Abram be thwarted by the powerful people, the powerful ruler, Pharaoh? You know what's most interesting to me, though? Of these three threats, the third one is the strangest, most common, and the biggest threat to the promise of God from a human perspective. What about when the person who's received the promise is the biggest threat? What if it's not nature, and what if it's not the people out there? What if it's this? What if it's the fear in Abram's own heart threatening the promise of God? Haven't you ever felt like you're your worst enemy sometimes? So will you, can you upend the promise of God? Can your own failure, your sin, your fear, your embarrassing, lying, deceiving, Trying to save your own skin. Is that what's going to upend God's promise? Because that's what's at stake here. I like what Alan Ross said about this. The interesting point in the story he said is that it was Abram who endangered the ancestress. But it was the Lord who delivered her. The father of faith is now filled with fear. These are the questions that not only faced Abram and Sarah in very real ways, famine, Pharaoh, his own fear of his heart, but are they not the questions, and you fill in the blank for how they applied in various ways in a culture very distant from theirs, and how those are threatening to upend the promises of God in Christ? Will they succeed? From all of this, what I understand by the verse 20 and 13.1 is the answer is a resounding no. And what I also learned from this is that evidently then, Abram's not the hero. His faithfulness is not the key. His courage is not what opens the door to receiving God's promise. His steadfastness and his belief is not what brings the blessing of God down on him. But it's God's faithfulness is the key. 
God is the covenant hero of the covenant he makes. He will secure his covenant with his people, period. That's the story in a nutshell. But you know we couldn't leave it there because I still have a few more minutes. But there's something else really interesting going on in this text. And that's, I can describe that with the word foreshadowing. So I already expressed a little bit of the foreshadowing. Isn't it weird how this happens again in Genesis 20 with Abram? This time in Gerar, which is not quite in Egypt, just north of Egypt, in the Negev region. So it didn't go quite as far, but still the same thing. Very similar. I mean, there wasn't a famine that time, but there was still the deception of sister, the fear of death taken by Abimelech, wealth that was given to Abraham, a warning in a dream to Abimelech. Abraham's rebuked, and he prayed, the prayer of Abraham heals the wombs, and that was the particular plague for Abimelech. All the women couldn't have any children. But it's very similar. And you know what's even more fascinating? It happens again in Genesis 26. This time, not Abraham but his son Isaac and his wife, Rebecca. Very similar. This time in Gerar again with Abimelech, which is, by the way, not necessarily the same guy. Abimelech means the king. It's a title more than a name. But very similar. Deception of sister, fear of death, and all, all the same sort. So, okay, we could understand that historically, like the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, and we could make that application there. But the bigger question I have is, why does Moses think we need this story at least three more times, two more times? Why does the human, why does the author that God chose, why does he, and the Holy Spirit, why do we need to hear this? This is one of my arguments why I do not believe the point is simply a moral lesson. I mean, I don't think we need to hear the same story repeated three times to know we shouldn't lie. Right? There's something else here going on. So when we, when we counter scripture like this and we see a repetition like this, we have to understand that the Hebrew writers, they used repetition intentionally. It was never in coincidence when they used repetition. Yes, sometimes it is just to install things in the memory, but mostly it's because there is a greater or more significant theological point being made through the repetition, foreshadow repetition. In other words, keep looking at this, keep looking at this, keep looking at this. There's something here, there's something here. These stories are similar, not identical, but similar enough to recognize that the Holy Spirit through Moses, the author, is doing something unique and interesting. As one person put, the parallelism is too great to be coincidence. But I think it's actually foreshadowing something else. Not just that it's going to happen again with Isaac or that Abram's going to do it again in Gerar. I think what is foreshadowing is something that will happen a little more than 400 years later. Think about it with me. 400 years from now, there will be a severe famine, 400 plus years from now, there will be a severe famine in the land. And this time, instead of the man, the offspring, the tribes, the seed of Abram will retreat to Egypt for safety from the famine. Remember that? If you remember your Bible stories, there was a guy God sent before, Joseph, to go prepare the way, and, and then they went to Egypt for safety from the famine, famine in the land promised. They traveled to Egypt. Genesis 47 speaks of that. 
Remember how when they got to Egypt, there was a threat against the lives of those who were males? Abram was worried he was going to lose his life. And now there is a threat because the Pharaoh commands that all the baby boys are killed. A threat to the offspring. A threat to the seed continuing. They're in bondage in Egypt, just like Sarah was in bondage to Pharaoh's house. And how does God respond to that? Remember how he plagues Egypt? Plagues the house of Pharaoh with ten plagues this time? We don't know how many it was with Abram, but it was plagues. Funny, the, the Hebrew is very interesting because the exact same words are used in, in Hebrew, used in Exodus 12. Take and go by Pharaoh. That's what he said to Abram. That's this new Pharaoh. Says the same thing to Abram's seed, his descendants. And they are sent away with great wealth. And it's fascinating. In Numbers chapter 13, it describes their journey. It even says it this way. And they traveled to the Negev, to the south, ready to enter the promised land. So this, the, especially the Hebrew language that's used here, once again, it is far too parallel to be coincidence. This is what Moses, I think, is foreshadowing. Not just that it'll happen in Gerar. Not just that it will happen with Isaac. But it will happen to the entire nation. Now, why is this, for, why is this foreshadowing important? Because I think this is where you and I come in. This is why it matters to us. We could sit here, read this story, and say, but that was Abram. But he was specially blessed. He was so faithful in other parts of his life. He was, he was a good man. See, I'm no Abram. I'm no Sarah. Yes, the promises, the covenant promises of God to Abram could not be upended and Sarah, but they will be to me. But if God shows us that not only will his promises be counted upon because of his faithfulness to Abram, but they can be counted on because of his promises to the entire nation, to every one of the seed of Abram, to the entire offspring. And if you read anything about these guys that were in Egypt, the offspring of Abram, they're not very faithful. Remember the immediate thing they want to do as soon as they get out of the exodus? Is to go right back. It'd be like Sarah saying, I know Abram, we got out of it this time. But you know what? You head on up to the Negev. I'll just go back down to Pharaoh's court. That's what it'd be like. That's what they were like. And if his promises of faithfulness are true to the father. And true to the physical descendants then are they not equally true to all who are sons of Abram? And who are sons of Abram, according to Paul the Apostle? Everyone who believes on the name of the Lord is a son of Abram. So they're true to you and to me. That's the point. That's Moses' point. Now, from a historical perspective, he's teaching this to the people who have just come out of the Exodus. 
And so he's writing this back saying, remember it happened to Abram and Abram again and Isaac again. And now you're sitting here. We can't make it in the land. We can't do it. It's not going to work. Why? Look at the faithfulness of God. What changed in him? That today he decided to remain unfaithful. Now yesterday and last year and to those people, but to me, no, what, what changed in him? That's the point. That's the, in, that's the interest here. But beloved brothers and sisters, I say it again because it's true to Abram and now it's true to Israel. Neither faithfulness nor unfaithfulness is the grounds of Abram or his seed's assurance of God's promises. God's character is the grounds of assurance that you have. God's character. But we're not done foreshadowing yet. Now Moses, I don't think, saw this. But a guy, thousand plus years later, a couple thousand years later, he saw this. His name was Matthew. And so we could look further. What about the, 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 the ultimate seed? And we encounter a son of Abram named Joseph. And a daughter of Sarah named Mary. And they had just witnessed the miracle birth of the seed. The one in whom all the other seed offspring will find their hope. And the promise is not being made like it was to Abraham. It's being fulfilled to this son of Abram and daughter of Sarah. Finally and ultimately fulfilled in the coming of the Christ. And immediately, there is a threat to the seed, to the promise of God. And what does this threat look like? Well, first of all, there is a famine of the word and faith in the land. No one believes. In fact, there's been no prophets for 400 years until this one guy, John, starts talking. But there has been a famine, and then you read all about it, and nobody cares. Nobody believes. And a powerful ruler. But in the ironic twist, instead of being a ruler down in Egypt, it's a ruler in their own land. A powerful ruler who hates Christ, hates God, named Herod, rises up. And you know what his task is to do when he hears of the seed fulfilled? Kill all the baby boys. Sound familiar? Kill all the baby boys. Wipe them out. And here's the crazy twist. An angel comes to these, this, these, this couple and says, go down to Egypt. And when Herod's dead, I'll bring you up. And Matthew, the author, is like writing about these things and writing about the, the, the birth of Jesus. And I am convinced, I know this is speculative, but I'm convinced he's going, huh, this sounds super familiar. And so he writes, quoting not this text, but actually quoting a later prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Just like Abraham, out of Egypt his son was called Isaac, out of Gerar, and then the nation of Israel, out of Egypt his sons. So now the son of God, out of Egypt he's called. So I go further. If the divine promise of seed, land, blessing, great name could not be hindered when given to Abram, even though Abram was his worst enemy, 
if it could not be thwarted when delivered in the entire sons of Abraham, the nation, in Exodus. And if the seed fulfilled could not be touched, but even Egypt, in an ironic twist, is used as the place of safety when fulfilled in Jesus Christ, then it is not possible for one promise that God has made to you in your salvation to ever fail. It's not possible. What can you possibly do wrong to lose a promise given to you by the God of all the earth? What can you possibly do right to earn and gain the promise given to you by the God of all the earth? Your assurance, my beloved, of justification, forgiveness, sanctification, glory eternal, land, life, seed, new name and glory, your, your salvation in no way rests upon your faithfulness or even your marks of growth. But a Christian assurance rests solely on the faithfulness of God provided in the life and death of Jesus Christ. So stop looking around out there in here to find assurance. There's nothing but fearful threats there. Look to Jesus and be saved all the ends of the earth. There is a New Testament text that I think more than any other text beautifully portrays this. I'm going to read it with you this morning. I'm actually going to invite you to read it with me audibly if you can. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.